welcome independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind, shadow citizens. Shadow Citizen will explore the shadows of an alternate reality. Your hosts, Rachel L. McIntosh. We're back, gang. It's another week. I'm Rachel L. McIntosh. I'm the host of Shadow Citizen. But as we're having issues right now with our Skype. We're trying to get our guest on, who I'm really excited to talk with. And I'm sure everybody that's on listening live with us right now is excited to hear from, too. It's Adam Kokesh. Um, I heard Adam Kokesh give a speech. I want to say in ninth, though, excuse, 2007 or eight. It was at the uh, Freedom March, and it was such a moving speech. It was incredible. Um, it was like 90 degrees outside. We were all these Ron Paul people were in Washington, D.C., standing in front of the Capitol, and he delivered the speech, and it just made me cry. It talked about just everything you wanted to hear at that point, that it wasn't it, just about freedom and how it was important to just love freedom. And then he gave the um, speech again at the Ron Paul's political training that he had. Um, and I was at that, too. And it was really good. And people stood up and they were clapping. And I found out just the other day after I spoke with another guest, it was literally the same day that I spoke to another guest, um, that he was running for president of the United States in 2020. I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy's been all over the place. He's... um He's been doing a lot of different things since that time in 2007. And when he gets on the phone with us, he can tell us about it. Um, I, he was doing a lot of things to raise awareness. I know that he ran for um, some sort of political office. He'll tell us about that experience. But I know he did things like an open carry uh, situation. Oh, good, good. Um, I guess he's on the line with us right now. So, Adam, are Hello, you Rachel. Yes, I am. Thank you so much. Hey, I'm I'm really sorry. I didn't I didn't mean to make you cry. That wasn't the point of that. <laughs> it was so good. It was so good, Adam. It just made me burst out. On top of it, I hadn't slept in like 24 hours because we did the Ron Voight down to the thing, and all I had eaten yep. was chicken teriyaki, and you know hadn't slept. So it was an incredible speech, and it was great. And since that time, I've been a, a big fan of you, and I was really excited to hear that. You're running for president. So if you want, you start off where you want to start off. Do you want to start off back then? We've got two hours. You could tell us your whole yeah. life story. Um, well, we, we only have an hour, actually. Um, we're on our way right now from uh, from somewhere in northern Maryland into Baltimore since okay. um, the taxation theft tour. And this is part of the lead-up to 2020. Uh, I'm getting ready to run on the platform of dissolving the entire federal government. So when we say Kokesh for not president, saying that I'm not running for president or running for not president specifically, or really rather running against the presidency itself, it's really much more accurate to talk about what we're doing. But to sum it up, I'm coming a bankruptcy and doing the entire thing in a peaceful, orderly manner, returning to some agencies as independent institutions. Okay. 
Oh, well, that I think whatever you just said was probably really important, but it was all ch- jumbled up. Your cell phone's cutting in and out. Um, but the oh. gist of it is that oh. you're going to dismantle, like basically dismantle the federal government. Right. Well, the problem is that you know we live in a third world country known as the United Soviet States of America, where we have communications cartels, and unlike in a lot of more developed countries, cell phone service even as close to a major city is pretty all right, so I could I could hear that one. <laughs> All right, well it should be it should be getting better as we as we get closer to the city here. Okay, so now you're going to run with the Libertarian Party, or or is this outside of the party? We're absolutely with the party. We are organizing right now. We are recruiting delegates on this tour, and. We're for the reforms that the party needs to stop being a debate club and become the political force that it should be in 2018 at the National Convention. And one of the most important things is that we want to introduce decentralization or localization of government into the National Party platform. And specifically to say that it's preferable to have governing decisions made on the local level as close to the community and the individual as possible rather than by a central authority. Even if, if communities are going to make wrong decisions every now and then, it's much better than trying to squeeze everybody into the one-size-fits-all solution. And it's basically the everybody-gets-what-they-want strategy. When you get government down to the community level, it's a lot more responsive. So if you want government to do something in your community, you can have that if you find a community of like-minded people. And you don't force that on anybody else. Other communities can organize how they see fit. We also want to make sure that we we have a statement of unity in the party in 2018. So it's not just about bringing together the splinter groups within the libertarian movement, but to say that if you believe in localization, if you want government decentralized, it doesn't matter if you're a conservative or a liberal or a moderate, whatever, you can hold on to your aesthetic preferences for politics or for how communities should be organized as long as you embrace the core ethical mission of the Libertarian Party. Okay. All right. The general overview for everybody listening to the show, would this be more like the Articles of Confederation? Where no, it would, be, it would be – well, see, one of, the, one of the things is that well, – one of the important benefits of this is that when you have 50 independent states, the Olympics will be that much more competitive. So <laughs> you have to have – you have to end up with 50 independent states completely independent and if they end up forming collectives after we've completed this process, you know, that's possible, but that wouldn't be my job. That wouldn't be within my authority. So specifically to take us through this one course of localizing government by dissolving the federal government, the end result of that would be that 50 states and the territories and the district are independent governments at that point. So there will be some agencies that continue to exist. I know some people are going to criticize me and call me a statist for this, for wanting to create uh, potentially a, a perpetual government agency. But I think it would be certainly understandable as an independent thing. One of the benefits is we get to release all the documents. All of the secrets come out, all of the records, all of the patents. And, and you know there are lots of things that the government, or our government, especially the federal government of the United States, does in secret that are horrific, and we only find out decades later. So we want to release all of those records, but we have to do so in a way where we redact private personal information that shouldn't be made public. So there will be probably an endowment for the Library of Congress to handle those records in perpetuity or at least as long as they're relevant. 
the Department of Veterans Affairs, for example, uh, needs to be spun off. I say privatized, although a lot of people don't like that word. But what we're talking about here is putting resources in the hands of people who have an actual interest in them. So in the case of the VA, you know, we have over 20 veterans committing suicide every day in this country. If we take the VA, give it an endowment, spin it off as a private institution, and give every single veteran in America one ownership voting share, I guarantee you're not going to have 20 veteran suicide today. So there are some agencies that will continue like that. For example, Social Security, when we're done liquidating the federal government, we're going to fund Social Security until the money runs out. We want to pay back the creditors who the federal government has stolen from when we go through this bankruptcy process. And we're not talking about foreign banks. We're not talking about foreign governments. We're talking about the American people. And I, I can't promise exactly how much it's going to be, but that's what we're doing with the stolen funds. When we liquidate the federal government, they go to paying back the people as fairly as we possibly can do it. And so in that sense, you will have these American government vestigial agencies that carry on. And if you wanted to call that the uh, agency of confederation, I mean, hypothetically, yes, the 50 states, uh, or rather the veterans of the 50 states or the Social Security account holders of the 50 states would still be connected by those institutions. But there would be no central governing authority of the federal government. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so you had mentioned bankruptcy. So you see bankruptcy in the future for America. Well, I think it's been the, the American federal government really – I mean, it's kind of like, is, is, the, is the mafia bankrupt or not? You know, I mean, if it steals for everything it owns, does it ever legitimately own property in the first place? I would say it's been bankrupt from really the beginning when the Articles of Confederation were usurped by those who signed the Constitution to create a stronger central authority. But as an actual corporate entity that it is now, it's clearly bankrupt. I mean, if you look at the debt-to-asset ratio, if you look at the cash flow of the federal government, no, there's no way that any sane business person would look at that and say, yeah, that's a good solvent business. So right. in a sense, we're just declaring bankruptcy as in a state that already exists. We are, we are deciding we are giving up on this institution. We are no longer going to allow it to continue in this fiscally irresponsible and solvent state. And if the message is basically, hey, Let's do this the easy way rather than the hard way. The hard way is burying your head in the sand, pretending that we don't have a problem, and then hoping that government spares you when it's violent death throws as it desperately clings to power. But the easy way is to apply a solution as big as the problem. And I think the American people, from this tour, from going out and talking to people, I mean, even just over the last few years, I think overall the American people who don't vote especially are looking for a reason to come out and vote, but they need uh, a legitimate reason, not someone who's just going to give them more of the same. And more or less, uh, I mean, I think for those who even care enough to analyze it at that level, they're ready to admit that the Constitution is a failed experiment. If you accept the, you know, Amero fantasy land story of why it was instituted in the first place. But of course, you know better. You know that the Constitution is a wonderfully successful experiment at creating a strong central authority that can rip off more people than any government has in the history of humanity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So now that sounds like, let me see. Now you, did you say this at something called the Aspen conference recently? 
Right, the next conference in Aspen. That was it was a really amazing event. And a yeah, lot tell of me about that. Because yeah. I was talking to Catherine Austin Fitz about that, and she heard you talking, and she got scared. Not well, not scared like she was in danger or anything, but she was like, "Wait a second, this sounds a lot like something called the Rape of Russia." And that was um, Anne Williamson. She gave a testimony before the Banking and Financial Services, the U.S. House, in 1999, where she talked about basically how the CIA went in there and it was called the rape of Russia. They went in and mm-hmm. just like crashed the, you know, you know, the Russian government. And then all these private businesses came in, which of course right. the CIA is like the, the CIA is the business intelligence unit of the United States <laughs> right, government. Right. And um, she talked about that and how literally millions and millions of people actually died because Immediately when they did that to Russia, um, people's life savings were worth nothing, and they right. only could hang on for like a couple weeks, and then they had they had to sell all of their assets just to feed themselves. And she was very yeah. concerned that this might happen to us if what you were talking about would were to happen. Well, we're talking about really the opposite. We're talking about uh, I mean dissolving the CIA. The CIA will no longer exist. Uh, after this executive order is signed, or at least it'll, it'll be a custodial agency and will have no authority. It'll have no ability to carry out such horrendous missions anymore. And I think getting rid of the systems of coercion is the most important thing to stopping those kinds of, you know, economic manipulations on the largest scale. Um, but, uh, Catherine, when, when, when she came and interrupted my speech, I mean, she was, she was really upset. You know, I mean, she wasn't, you know, in control of herself the way she was speaking and it was, uh, it, it, was, it was kind of disturbing. I, I don't know what she, uh, if, if she was, you know, there for some other nefarious purpose or if she just really misunderstood what I'm talking about here. But uh, I, I think the, the premise of her objection, and it might be that she has a somewhat different worldview, is that the American federal constitutional government today somehow prevents uh, manipulation of markets and currencies and is a force for good in the world of keeping it decentralized. And I mean, if that's the case, I think that's a very historically inaccurate worldview. And if anything, we've seen that the existence of the federal government has always served to concentrate power in the hands of the few. And while it is possible that in what I'm advocating, there will be a, a period of, of upheaval, I think with the kind of timeline we're talking about doing this over, with the kind of warning that people will have, even if they're completely unprepared, when we vote in November, we won't be signing the executive order until taking off in January, obviously. So there will be a nearly two months, uh, you know, you'll have two months notice to prepare even for, and, and you will know exactly what is coming because it will be laid out in that executive order. So while, you know, she might be correct to point out that there are some potential negative side effects, of doing this. And I think the negative side effects are mostly for the people who benefit from the federal government. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lose sleep over a bunch of IRS agents losing their jobs. Sorry if that causes, uh, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to complain about that unemployment, you know what? Uh, yep, totally guilty as charged here. But we know that economically speaking, government jobs are incredibly inefficient. For every government job we eliminate, we free up the resources to create at least three more jobs that are nonviolent jobs because the violent government jobs always entail uh, a huge amount of inefficiency compared 
do the cooperative peaceful market solutions to those problems. So, um, yeah, it's, it's possible. I think in the age of the Internet especially, and, you know, Catherine was at a, a cryptocurrency conference. Nexus is one of the really exciting new up-and-coming cryptocurrencies. I made a good bet on that, buying it when it was four cents each. They're worth uh, about $3 each now. So I, I think when we have these alternative economic models, the idea of staying on the old model because it's got some temptation of stability or getting away from it might create some instability is saying like, you know, well, I can't quit heroin because I might be going through some withdrawal. You know, it's kind of a silly argument. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if I, when I spoke to you the other night, you were talking a lot about Bitcoin, about a cryptocurrency. And like you just said, you were at a conference talking about cryptocurrency. Talk about how mm-hmm. you envision American money being when you are the non-president. Oh, well, I don't, but I can answer the question of what the process is to switch from what we have now, which is a global fiat currency system that is a currency that is forced on us at gunpoint that we don't have an option to opt out of, except now with cryptocurrency, we do, although paying taxes, you're still forced to use the U.S. dollar, obviously. So the question is asked, how would I end the Federal Reserve System? And I know this might sound like a shock to a lot of people, but I don't actually want to end the Fed myself directly because I I don't think I would have that authority even in this executive order as president for the purpose of dissolving the federal government. The Federal Reserve is often referred to as a private institution. And some people will argue with that. There's a little subjectivity in that. But it's a, it's a private-public partnership, right, where you have a private bank that has certain monopoly privileges thanks to the enforcement of the U.S. government. So if you remove that violent backing from the Federal Reserve System, it's subject to market forces. The answer to the question, how soon should the U.S. get off of the U.S. dollar, is let the market decide. So if I come in and I'm saying, hey, we're dissolving the federal government, it's a bankrupt institution, I can't say, hey, and therefore every American, you have to stop using the U.S. dollar. All I can say is you are now free to use competition. And the Federal Reserve, I I can only predict, uh, and this is really the most important thing, uh, what millions of people coming together peacefully will create as a monetary system. I can make predictions based on market trends. I can make predictions based on technology trends. I can make predictions based on my preferences or other people's preferences and the way that those are going to change over time. But I'm not going to be a central player. That's the point is that we want to let people figure these things out without violence involved. So I'm not going to present a plan that is so I imagine that if the Federal Reserve is still functional, if the dollar is even a functional currency at this point, if it hasn't been significantly shaken by cryptocurrency and sent into its inflationary death spiral at that point, then we're going to see a pretty orderly shift as people get away from the dollar and, and shift over to cryptocurrency. And unlike every single other currency shift that's happened in human history, this one can happen with a device that every American can have in their pocket, and most of us already do right now. A smartphone is enough to have a practical monetary system that serves the people instead of the banks. Okay. So if everybody's going to be, um, in, you know, you're not, you're not dictating this happening, but if everybody is to be walking around with a smartphone and that's how we're going to be doing our money, um, wouldn't 
protection of the U.S. infrastructure be really, really important, namely that Internet works, that electricity works? And shouldn't we have something to, you know, some sort of national thing to support that? Because otherwise, wouldn't oh, it well, why would wait, 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 why, why would it be cities? national? Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So I'm sorry. I got to cut off there. Please, please go ahead. Mm. Hello. I'm, 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 yeah, I'm missing half of what you said. My, my whole point. Oh, okay. Is... Uh, so <laughs> don't we need something of a national defense to protect the infrastructure for the electronics for the monetary system? Is that your yes. Question? Yes, that's the question. Okay. Well. I think uh, absolutely, except that it wouldn't really be, you know, on a national scale. It would be on a, a voluntary scale. So, uh, you know, one of the big problems with, uh, you know, telecoms today is that they're all navigating various uh, government regulations from country to country and dealing with various, you know, monopoly, oligopoly type policies like we have in the United States with the telecom companies that have, uh, you know, an oligopoly over service and it's, it's you know, impossible to to really compete with them, and that's why service sucks so many places, and internet sucks, and you don't have choices in who you get your service from. So those companies would then be able to provide security that's appropriate to uh, securing those networks, and I think that's that's absolutely critical. Okay, because the way so, I, so would, vision, so I can I be, can envision this happening just horribly that certain cities, like say Washington D.C. or certain cities. Mm-hmm have awesome communications, and then other parts don't, and therefore they're penalized for not having the Internet, and they're penalized for not having the access that these other country, other communities have. Wait, wait who, would, who would penalize them? Well, they, they wouldn't have the um, ability to trade. Why not? So, they, so they'd have to move somewhere where there was this sort of communication. Wait, 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 why, why, would it, why wouldn't they have the ability to trade? Because of the Internet. How does the Internet stop them from trading? It do, it's not stopping them from trading. I'm saying, what if these people are in an area that it doesn't have coverage because it's been left to a private organization or to a private family or to a private you know, community to really put their money into the infrastructure? Well, okay, so your, your question is based on the, this assertion that uh, private businesses don't want to serve people and create service inequalities? No, that's not what I'm saying that- at all. What I'm saying is there's, like, say you like you really are into cryptocurrency, so you're going to go somewhere where you can do your trading and, you know, buying and selling. And But what if well, there's somebody who li- who's an American can, citizen, who's an American right? citizen currently, and lives somewhere where he can't? So you'd say, all right, he's going to use the dollar. But as in your own mind, the dollar is going to spiral down and not be worth anything. So that person well, hold on, where, to well, move uh, hold on, I'm not, I, I think there's some incorrect premise in your question here. Like I can use my phone anywhere on earth, literally now. Where is, where is it that people are being deprived from getting access to the Internet right now? So do you think it was probably a good idea that Obama gave everybody a free phone? Well... I think it's good that we're capable of that, but I don't think it's good that government did that, no. Yeah. See, that's the thing. um, What you're talking about makes me think, like, people have to accept this technology, which which is freely available in America. Oh, no, of course not. Yeah, no, you would would absolutely have the choice to opt out. The only force here that exists is when government actually threatens people with violence 
for not complying with their policy or for trying to compete with one of the, their favorite businesses. Right. So we're right. talking about we're talking about removing the force entirely. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Now there are other people that have tried. Um, like you were telling me about Bitcoin Jesus the other night, Roger Ver. Um, yeah, great guy. Yeah, he's looking to um, start a libertarian utopia um, somewhere else in another part of the world. And mm-hmm. he's not going to offer up his country. It's not going to be an ICO. When ICO for people that are listening, that's a, uh, like a coin, like a big, how do I explain this? If you're starting a, a crypt, cryptocurrency, you offer like instead of an initial public offering for a stock, it's initial like crypto offering and you offer the mm-hmm. So he's not he's not offering it as a coin. Now, would you you if you were the non-president, would you envision the American, you know, machine that it is, even though you're separating down into states, each state or community, could they offer their own ICO? Well, I I wouldn't be in any position to stop them, certainly. Uh, I don't see a problem with that, although I imagine just how evil, corrupt, and destructive, and how much the federal government has been holding back America, but I don't think they're going to be turning to state governments to solve problems. They're going to be turning to themselves. They're going to be turning to... Uh-oh, we're losing you. Uh-oh. Oh, Adam, we're losing you. Well, we're uh, we're coming into Baltimore now. Yay! Hopefully it will kick in. It will kick in. So hypothetically, yes, a state could issue its own cryptocurrency, but why would anybody use it when you have non-state cryptocurrencies? You have peaceful cryptocurrencies. Why would you go to the cryptocurrencies that are tied to uh, a state's violent monopoly? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. I see. I smell what you're stepping in, Adam. Okay, so now <laughs> – all right, now – Peter Thiel, as you are well aware of, he is very into mm-hmm. libertarian stuff. He went over to the Republican Party in this last election. Um, he was uh, very he into was a Trump supporter. What's that? Say that again. Yeah, he was. He, he ended up going. He ended up backing Trump. I was very disappointed to see that. Yeah. What was you? What was your thought about that? Why do you think he did that? Well, just. I- I think there are, there are a lot of people, and I, I don't know Peter Thiel personally. I don't. I'm not familiar with his philosophy. I just listened to a few interviews with him, and, and you know that, that sort of thing. So I, I don't want to speak too much on his behalf. But I think that there are a lot of people who call themselves libertarian who don't understand what that word means, and that's fine. A lot of libertarians resent that. I think that's a great thing. Um, although it is a little weird when Sean Hannity refers to himself as libertarian leaning, you go, yeah, okay, Sean, whatever. You definitely don't know what that word means. But I think a lot of people just think that libertarian means freedom-oriented or freedom direction, and I'm okay with people using the word that way. I think that's great. But obviously that's not the same as understanding the beautiful, simple philosophy that is libertarianism based on self-ownership, voluntarism, the non-aggression principle, which makes it more uh, an ethical philosophy rather than a political philosophy. Actually, if you apply libertarianism as an ethical philosophy to politics, you realize that it's not a political message at all. It's the anti-political message. So I, I would wager from my understanding of Peter Thiel that he's just more of a freedom-leaning person or a freedom-oriented person or someone who appreciates freedom 
rather than a libertarian. And if he calls himself libertarian, that's great. Let's be inclusive with it. And when someone like that sees Gary Johnson versus Donald Trump, I hate to say it, uh, but because Gary Johnson is also not a libertarian, it's very tempting for them to say, well, we can't go with Hillary, we have to go with Trump. And I think that represents uh, a really dangerous victimization uh, to the propaganda of, of elections, which is that you have to choose from the lesser of two evils. And when that's the case, uh, it, it really shouldn't matter. And, and if we keep falling for that, that gambit, then we're always going to end up voting for evil and the system will continue to get worse. And if we just accept that, yeah, maybe we elect, maybe, and I don't think this is true, but maybe Hillary Clinton is in her policy and as president going to be significantly more evil than Donald Trump. Okay, so you're going to vote for Trump, so we avoid Clinton, but then you're condemning us to five more election cycles of voting for the lesser evil, whereas if you had supported Gary Johnson, even if you didn't like him, uh, knowing that he's still far more freedom-oriented than either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, at least you'd be making an investment of the future of the party and the message and making real change. And I think every prediction that I've made in that sense around Donald Trump has come true. Everybody who supported him has been very disappointed, and I told him that was exactly what was going to happen. <laughs> All right. All right, so that's cool. Now, um, what I was going to ask was you did run for an office previously. I remember you standing next to a picture of you standing next to Ron Paul. Were you a rebel that's Republican correct. when you did that? Yeah, well, I was, a I, was, I was a libertarian first, and at the time I was still a lifetime member of the Libertarian Party, and mm -hmm. Ron Paul endorsed me and said that he would only endorse me if I ran as a Republican and helped with his general uh, libertarian insurgency into the Republican Party strategy, which I think since then we've seen to be of uh, limited potential. Interesting. Okay. Good. Very diplomatic way to say that. So he was, <laughs> he wanted you in there to help him with a libertarian insurgency within the Republican Party. Excellent. All right. So, um, there's another question I have a, about Ron Paul. Um, how did you get that gig? Did he hear your speech at the Freedom March? Like, how did you get the gig at the Freedom March? Well, this, uh, for the Freedom March in 2008, that was being organized by grassroots supporters, not the campaign, fortunately, because right. a lot of the people right. in the campaign were the, the Jesse Benton types, and they, they, they didn't want anything that was really challenging militarism, which is unfortunate. And by the way, that's really the most important part of this platform, uh, that we are challenging the essence of militarism itself, going back to the advice of our founders, who understood that a standing army was anti-freedom and that we were better off with the militia defense. So at the time, I was very active with Iraq Veterans Against the War, and the organizers of the rally wanted to have someone representing the anti-war side of Ron Paul's message. So I was uh, selected for that, and uh, Ron Paul was there when I gave the speech, and then I was invited to speak at his event in uh, in Minneapolis, or, or St. Paul, rather. I think it was right across the river um, mm -hmm. for the Minneapolis RNC in 2008. And uh, from there, there were a lot of people who were just like, all right, Adam, what are you stepping up for next? And it was kind of... Uh, and uh, 
Ron Paul wanted me to run as Republican, so that was the strategy I pursued. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay, so listen to me. Did um, you since that time you've done a lot of different kind of I don't know dancing things at the Washington? Where were you? Like, yeah, you know, and you got arrested, and then you did the open carry thing. You got arrested. How how did you avoid? Being in, I mean, you were in jail, obviously, but how did you get out of jail? Like, did you swing a deal with somebody? How, what was the thing that got you out of jail? Well, because I did a normal months. person would be like, they'd be in jail, they'd be stuck. <laughs> they'd just have to, so how did you do it? <laughs> well, I actually had a really good time when I was in jail. I, I, I thought it was a, a wonderful government-induced taxpayer-funded spiritual retreat, and I spent a lot of time meditating and reading and working on my, my yoga. And that's, that's actually how uh, I started writing the book, Freedom. So I was, I've, I've been arrested over three dozen times in the course of my activism. And most of them are really petty, you know, site and release, or, you know, you get, you get getting arrested for protesting and then they, they give you a ticket and let you go, or you do it overnight and you go to court the next day and they let you go. But I did two stretches that were at least Weekends. I've done a handful of weekends, and one was in Philadelphia for not smoking a joint in front of Independence Hall, part of the Smoke Down Prohibition Rally. They arrested me while I had the microphone in my hand and pulled me away so fast that the cord ripped out of the microphone. And I don't, I don't want to go give you the whole story here, but basically, federal officer bumped into me from behind while he was going to arrest someone else, and because he bumped into me. I was charged with assaulting a federal officer, and that was a felony, but there was tons of video footage. So when they tried to give me a deal for being out on pretrial release, I told them to shove it, and they let me out a week later. In the case of the shotgun incident, I was denied bail in the course of that and ended up doing four months while basically being bullied into a corner. They threw some other charges at me. And, and see, once they can deny you bail, it, it makes it really easy for them to mess with you, which is, by the way, why I have so much admiration for the Bundy family descendants who are in federal facilities in Nevada right now awaiting retrials because they were denied bail and they have been held uh, despite having an unsuccessful trial even. They were, uh, I think most of them ended up with, uh, with hung juries. There, there have been some who have been convicted and some that have been exonerated and released. There's been a lot of stuff going on with that. But the uh, Ryan Ammon and Cliven Bundy are still in jail right now. So in my case, you know, you could say that I, I tapped out after four months and they kind of bullied me into a corner, made it clear that I wasn't going to be able to pursue the legal strategy where I was going to be able to press the Second Amendment issue. And so after four months, I, I took a plea deal and I got out and I was on probation for two years and had to wear an ankle bracelet for six months. Oh, wow. Okay. You had a wrinkle bracelet. Okay. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so you did a plea bar, you did a plea deal. What was, what did you yeah. have, what did you have to do for that? I had to plead guilty to uh, a felony. Okay. And then they said, all right, you're under yeah. arrest. Here's an ankle bracelet and you can go home and just hang out for a while. And that was that. Well, was, <laughs> it's a lot more complicated than that. But, yeah, basically, it was uh, if you plead to this felony, we'll give you time served plus two years probation. And I, I just told the judge, like, you know, hey, I travel for work a lot. I have to be able to travel for work. And so 
there was there was a lot of back and forth. I had a probation officer who tried to set me up, and I recorded him on video and and got him in a lot of trouble, which was fun. And uh, yeah, so they said, well, if you're going to travel, we're going to put an ankle bracelet on you. So I had to wear an ankle bracelet for the last six months of my probation. Oh wow! All right, <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Now the next thing I was going through your there's oh, I went online and I looked for Adam Kokesh and I got to your Wikipedia page. And it says that you went to an elite boarding school in Pebble Beach. Did you really? Uh, uh, yeah, I guess you could call it that. Robert Louis Stevenson in Pebble Beach. I was there for a year, and I I really didn't like it, um, mainly because the social environment was so stratified, uh, like rich kids versus not quite as rich kids. It, it is and an elite boarding school. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I've never heard it described as elite, but uh, I think I think that would apply. I mean, it's a good school. They, you know, they get kids into Ivy Leagues, and I just I didn't like it. I, I didn't like the the environment. I didn't like the attitude. So I went to the other boarding school that I got into that had horses, and so I was able to uh, do horseback riding and team penning and rodeo sports and polo cross and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I, oh, and then I got kicked out. I got kicked out of that school uh, a, a year and a little bit in, and then ended up doing my last two years of high school at the Native American Prep School in Rowe, New Mexico, where I was the only white student to attend that school ever because they shut down a year after I graduated. Graduating class of fifteen students. Wow! Wow! Okay, so... Yeah, so I, I, had, I had a really fun, interesting high school experience. To say the I least. should say so. I should say so. Now, I'm just going to ask, what what's your family like? Are are your parents very wealthy that they thought to send you to boarding school? Or is it just... Uh, why, why was that a thing, do you think? Well, my parents got divorced when I was 10, and mm-hmm. it was a, a way for me to get away from doing one week with one and then one week with the other. So I, yeah, I really appreciate it for that. Um, my dad actually recently won a huge Supreme Court case, uh, nine to zero, Kokesh versus the SEC decided in favor of Kokesh. And he used to have a venture capital firm and was doing pretty well for himself, was able to you know, send all of his kids to school. And uh, so I, I definitely benefited from that. But the government has been screwing with him for the last, 17 years now holding a case over his head that he finally beat um, and had to take it all the way to the Supreme Court case. So I I grew up pretty well to do. We were in a nice neighborhood in in California, in the Bay Area. And yeah, my my parents were able to to do that. Although since then, uh, my dad has been destitute. And it's been really sad to see that the the government screwed him for so long. And and he had to go this far to to win this victory. But, uh, you know, I've had had a lot of money. To, to get by to, to feed is uh, his, his younger kids. I have three uh, half siblings from his second marriage who are all awesome. So the, the five of us now are Adam, Andrew, Alex, Alden, and Audrey. And my dad has a, a big white suburban with the license plate that says A Team on it. So now you know where I got my really corny sense of humor. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that. Um, now, 
why don't you tell us more about this book, Freedom? Because I know you were cruising around the country and you had this, the Freedom Wagon and you were cruising around and you have this book you've been passing out. I've got three copies of it right now. <laughs> so, awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. Um, tell us, you said you were in jail and this is what made you start writing this book. Is that, yeah, this like a, yeah tell us about that. Well, yeah, thank you for the opportunity for the great play here. It was, it was while I was in jail for that four months since that people were sending me all the great libertarian manifestos. And I used to have the, the list of names I could roll off the top of my head real quick, but, uh, you know, Rothbard, Mises, Hayek, Spooner, Konkin, Ruert, Rand. Um, I know I'm forgetting so many great ones, but uh, all of these great manifestos that came from Bastiat, I'm just going to keep going. Um, all of these great books that were sent to me while I was in jail were the inspiration for this because what, one of the things I realized, uh, having traveled the country as much as I have, and, and I, I like to brag about one thing, and that is that having asked more than more people than anybody else how they woke up to freedom, I think I have the best body of anecdotal data. I and mean, I wish I'd like written down every single answer I got to that question. Maybe I should start doing that. I should start writing that down and keeping a record. Um, but what I, what I got from that very clearly, and, and I think this plays with most people's observations, is that people don't wake up from being argued with. They don't even wake up in conversation. I've never heard someone say, well, I asked them, how did you wake up? Well, there was this guy yelling at me in a bar, and, you know, he just turned up the volume loud enough and I was able to realize that he was right about everything. And I said, okay, I'll be a libertarian. You know, obviously, that's not what happens. It happens in quiet contemplation. It happens when you're able to adjust your own worldview without any, you know, peer pressure or external influences. And so a lot of times people will say, and this is the best feedback for me, that it was Adam's YouTube channel that woke me up, that they spent, you know, a weekend or a week just going through my videos until they were able to absorb the perspective and the philosophy. But for a lot of people, and myself included, it was a book. It was Ethics of Liberty by Murray Rothbard that really was the final piece of the puzzle for me where I could say, okay, I get it now. I'm a libertarian, and I understand what that means. So what I did is, with all of these great books, with all of their strengths and weaknesses, I decided that I would become the greatest rip-off artist the freedom movement has ever known. And I would take all of their strengths and none of their weaknesses and put them into one ultimate red pill book, the ultimate conversion tool. So it's 100 pages. It's in short sections, one to two pages each. It's irrefutable logic, straightforward, easy to understand, easy language, uh, no really big words, and it's something that you can give to someone else with the absolute confidence that you can stand behind it, because I had a lot of help writing this book. I set out to write The Ultimate Red Pill, and because I was able to tap into my fan base and my supporters and crowdfund the editing, we succeeded. And I, I, I say this with, with all humility that right now, if you had to give someone one book and you wanted them to wake up to the reality of government, this would be the book you'd want to give them. It's not the silver bullet. It's not the be-all, end-all. It's not going to end the state by itself. But right now, for expanding this movement into the demographics who are ready to hear this message, I think it is an absolutely critical tool. I would say the market has backed up my assertion because we have over 2 million downloads now. 
the book is in its fourth printing, 50,000 copies in circulation. So it's, uh, it's been a big success so far, and enough people who believe in the message have donated because of it that we're able to travel the country like this and give books away for free everywhere we go. That's cool. All right, now speaking of donated, now as far as your non-president campaign goes, you're taking donations and you're taking in cryptocurrency, American well, U.S. Te- dollars? Technically, 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 we're not raising any funds for the presidential campaign or not campaign right now because we're not filing FEC paperwork yet. So we're doing this okay. legally. We will be filing FEC paperwork in January for an exploratory committee, and at that point, we will. Right now, people are able to donate to our 501c3 nonprofit. So the only money that's being spent on the not presidential campaign is uh, coming out of my personal funds, and we're making it very clear that, that there's that financial separation. But uh, we take tax-deductible contributions uh, of any amount, at uh, thefreedomline.com, you can click on donate, and it'll take you to the website for the 501c3 nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Now, um, yeah. So you're not, you don't have the real campaign. It's not officially official yet. You're, you're talking about it in, in 2020, and but you're serious. Right. You, you're serious. Yes. 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 We are building towards this. We are building the organization. Most importantly, we are building the groundwork, the network, the delegate organization to. Uh, come in and reform the Libertarian Party, and that's really the first step. So you could say that right now, legally speaking, we're in the pre-exploratory phase, and we will be entering the exploratory phase formally in January and most likely announcing Independence Day 2019. Okay. Now, for people at home that want to look at – you have a website for this. What is the website? Well, the main one is thefreedomline.com, and from that you can find where I'm posting videos, find all my social media stuff, where I'm blogging and everything, and that'll take you from there if you look at the menu to kokesh4notpresident.com. But it's way easier to remember how to spell the Freedom Line than my last name, unfortunately. So if you want to go straight to that, kokeshfornotpresident.com, but the easier website is thefreedomline.com. Okay. All right. The Freedom Line. I'll put that up under the YouTube stuff. And for everybody listening awesome. at home, and you know this too, that this is going to be sent out via YouTube, Vimeo, BitChute, Steam It, and iTunes. Yep. So Heck yeah. So, okay. you're on it. <laughs> that's right. I love it. That's, that's the way, that's the way you got to, you know, like we got to, we got to start, you know, practicing what we preach. You want to challenge social media monopolies. You can't just be hanging out on Facebook all day. You know, you at least got to have, I mean, there's so many alternatives now. I'm, I'm a big fan of Steemit and DTube. That's kind of what I'm focused on. But yeah, Kat, uh, or uh, sorry, Rachel, you're like, you're, you're, you're really on top of that. I think that's so important. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Got my finger on the pulse. Finger on the pulse over here, yep. Shadow Simpson. <laughs> well, you know, I, well, you know, I used to, I used to be much more focused on media production when I was doing Adam versus the man. Yeah, what, what happened the, to that? The, what happened to that, by the way? Why did that? Ha- I'm sorry well, to cut you off, but why did why did that go away? No, don't worry. That's that's exactly what I want to talk about because it, right, it really on. is an important shift in the consciousness that's happening around this. But you've heard now of the ad apocalypse on YouTube and how so many creators have been affected by that. 
and their revenue cut. Well, it happened to me in 2013. I was doing 2 million views a month. Uh, I was making $6,000 off of that. And I was hiring people. And then suddenly my revenue got cut by two-thirds. And I had to let people go. And it was very frustrating. And since then, it's just been downhill with YouTube. Was, you know, they were bought by Google and have, have screwed a lot of people over with, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. Yes, it's all private property, but in a corporatist environment, obviously there are other factors here. So I, I can't, you know, be too harsh on YouTube. They've, they've done a lot really to advance humanity, but they're no longer the really open source, free speech kind of platform that they used to be. It's much more controlled, much more corporate and advertiser driven. And that, that's, you know, part of the evolution of the internet. But it also means that the more important evolution towards decentralized, blockchain-based, really ownership by the people type social networks, that's just going to happen that much faster. And like you mentioned, BitChute, that's another great example. Um, and and I'm, I'm looking into that right now. But uh, Steemit, S-T-E-M-I-T, if people want to check that out, steemit.com. And they just added a video feature recently called B2. So there's that as well. And it's, it's really important that, that we make the shift. Although I can't really complain, even though I'm not in the full production, like when I was doing Adam versus the man, um, what I, what I, I, I killed Adam versus the man after I wrote freedom, because I wanted to, to do something that was more in line with the message rather than versus being confrontational. You know, I wanted it to be about, you know, what we're doing, which is peace and love and creating more productive, harmonious society. So, uh, you know, I haven't been that involved with media as my focus since I've been focused on the book and activism and organizing for this campaign. So it's just great to see that already we have this viable platform to steam it where I'm making more money on steam it than I was on YouTube, even though I was on YouTube for, you know, five or six years before I had the following and the subscription base to be able to do what I did. You know, just being on Steemit for a few months, boom, you know, I'm already making more money and I'm way happier on a platform that I trust, that is censorship-free, that is controlled by people who value the potential of the Internet rather than the people who own Google who care about getting people like Hillary Clinton elected. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, bringing it back to the non-presidential campaign or exploratory, but what would happen if all – it, everything got everything got privatized. If that happened, wouldn't it make it so that huge corporations could basically dominate anything anyway? Well, if they did, it would have to be peacefully and by consent, whereas today corporations are able to dominate things with the help of the violence of government, and that's why they're able to become uh, abusive as they are. When they're directly accountable to the people, to the customers, that kind of abuse isn't really possible. So I think getting rid of the violence enables that, uh, that kind of equalization that we would see that would get us away from the systems of concentrated power we live under today. Okay, interesting. All right. Um, now, another thing I was going to bring up. If hmm, you would be the president of the – well, it would still be the United States of America when you became president, the non-president. And then you would dismantle the federal government. And then right. not you personally, because you're not you're not going to be a dictator. You have to have Congress behind you. Well, yeah, no, we, we would be just no, we would be disbanding Congress immediately. But in terms of having a team, yes, we would have a team 
of custodians. And instead of a cabinet, it would be an active cabinet. Like I said, I'm not appointing a secretary for an agency. I'm appointing a custodian for every agency who's going to carry out this more or less preordained process that's, that's laid out in the executive order. Okay. So the people that have been elected and are in government, they're going to oppose you. <laughs> are you ready for this? Of course, if, if you get this position. Or is this more just like to spread the idea, like how Ron Paul kept saying, it's not about me winning the presidency, it's about spreading the idea. Is No, we are, we are running to win. We are going to be ready to win in 2020, although I understand this may take several election cycles before we build the overwhelming consensus through the American public that's going to be necessary to carry this out. It's been amazing just traveling the country to see how much this message has inspired people because we already have a legal team and a policy team working on this executive order that would lay it out in detail so it's absolutely clear what the American people are voting for when they go to vote for this. So the challenge of dissolving the agencies, like what what is the process for each one, all of that's laid out in advance. And, and I would be overseeing this process as the custodian, but the only power that I would have would be really to, to supervise the custodians of the agencies or you know, nominate someone else if they are uh, if they're not doing their job. But the, the question really is, you know, is it constitutional, right? And the answer is heck no. Of course, it's not constitutional. What we are doing here is invoking the higher authority of the Declaration of Independence, which says that we, as a people, have the duty and the right to alter and abolish systems of government that do not serve us. This is clearly a government that is not serving the American people. So for someone to stand up and say you can't do that when we have the overwhelming support of the American people for the specific plan, they're not going to be able to oppose it. All right, Adam, thank you so much. We've got um, music coming up. It sounds like the music's coming up for us and we've got to say goodbye. But thank you so much for being with us. And so everybody hang on to the next hour. I'll be back. But Adam Kokesh, thank you. Have a great night. Rachel, thank you so much for the opportunity. Greatly appreciate it.